Um, I am excited to continue our series, uh, Expecting Jesus. That's our Advent um, messages this year. And despite the title, we're actually talking more about the unexpected things that happened in the story of Jesus being born. Because those, those details, those unexpected details, are really important for us today to understand what was God trying to tell us by sending Jesus the way he did. So last week we talked about um, the, the lineage of Jesus, his family tree. And if you were here, you may have learned that there were some weirdly shaped branches on that tree. There's some folks in that lineage that you wouldn't expect to be there. There are liars and cheats and murderers and prostitutes all in Jesus' family tree. So you think your family's weird, Jesus' family is equally weird, if not worse so. So you've got a good standard to live up to. This week, though, we're going to talk about the unexpected pregnancy that led to Jesus coming to the world. I mean, if we read this story, I don't think any of us would believe that Mary and Joseph had planned to have this all happen to them. And so we look at these, these different stories um, throughout the Gospels of Luke and Matthew. In Luke, we hear Mary's side of the story, and in Matthew, we hear more of Joseph's side of the story. And it's important for us to understand that both of those folks were involved, and both of those folks God used to do an amazing thing. But before we get too far into the scripture today, I want to talk about kind of our big idea for what we're going to go after today in this message. And that is that there's a calling in every believer's life to preserve and serve Jesus' legacy. Now, full, full disclosure, all cards on the table, when we get a chance to teach at Alpine, they give us the big idea and they give us some points and talking points, you know, kind of a peek behind the curtain for you. It's not all super cool stuff. They give us these points, and I, I got this outline, I said, what in the world does Jesus' legacy have to do with this story of Christmas? I was like, what? what? I need to dig into this more. So I had to go to God and ask him what exactly he wanted me to teach today. And what he brought me to was the idea that Jesus' legacy is something we don't talk about a lot. We don't define Jesus' legacy. When we think of legacies in our own lives, we think of grandparents or you know, aunts and uncles, parents, leaders, relatives who have left something behind for us to pursue or to live up to. You know, a legacy is what you leave behind. In my own life, uh, I look at my, my grandparents, um, they all have left me a great legacy. Um, but my, my grandpa on my dad's side, my dad's dad, uh, I remember years ago before we had our kids, uh, my grandpa died. It was a bit sudden. Um, he was advanced in years, so it wasn't a huge shock, but um, we flew back to West Virginia for his funeral services. Now, I knew my grandpa. I knew who he was. He was uh, a man of God. He was a leader in his church. He was a Bible thumper. He was the guy in our family. He was, he was kind of our, our patriarch of our family. But when I got to the funeral services and I heard all the different stories from folks all over the country who flew into this itty-bitty, rinkety town in West Virginia to honor this man, I thought, my goodness, he is so much more than I thought he was. There was a particular story that a couple shared. They had moved to this new town for this new job with this new company for this new boss, and that new boss was my grandpa. And as they moved into their new house, they're, you know, they're unloading, and people from work showed up to help them unload the truck and get them all set up. And there was a point in the day that they saw my grandpa on the floor of their kitchen scrubbing their floor because it needed to be done. And they were just struck by the fact that there was this man who, by all means, could have been telling everybody what to do. He was the boss, 
but he was on his hands and knees doing the job no one else wanted to do. And that really hit them hard for the rest of their lives. And honestly, it hit me hard as well. This legacy of servanthood that my grandpa learned from Jesus. So my grandpa's passing down a legacy to me that's the legacy that he was given from Jesus. And that is to be a servant leader and to tell everybody about him. Now, Grandpa's uncomfortable with stories about him, so we'll get going and talk about how that applies to Jesus' legacy, because we look at what did Jesus leave behind when he left the earth as a legacy? Well, he, he left us, gang. We, the church, are Jesus' legacy. It's our job to bring Jesus' message of hope and redemption and salvation to a world that desperately needs him. This Christmas season, you can see all around us, people are open to listening to this story about a manger and angels and shepherds and wise men, and depending on what versions you get out there, as far as what nativity set you get, that's all amazing detail. But we can't lose sight of the fact that there were two people at the beginning of this story whose lives were wrecked because of God's call for them, at least wrecked by their own standards. And they wouldn't have believed the story. If you think about Jesus coming to earth, people today don't believe it. Imagine how Mary and Joseph must have felt when they were told this is what was going to happen. They didn't just believe that kind of stuff because they needed to realize it takes a divine messenger to help understand the grace of God. We don't, as humans, really grasp the things of God very well. It's above our understanding. We have to have it explained to us oftentimes. And God is gracious enough to send people to explain things to us, to send angels, to send his own word, and to give us answers to the questions we're going to ask. And as we read this story, we're going to go to Luke chapter 1, if you want to start turning there now. The story of how Mary found out what was going to go on, we see she had questions, and that was okay, because the angel answered those questions for her. Let's pick it up in verse 26. We're going to read a lot of Bible today, so get your fingers ready to turn pages, as I love the Bible. Um, So in verse 26, we pick up the story. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. Two quick asides before we keep going. First off, Elizabeth is an important person. We're going to talk more about her next week. She was the mother of this dude named John the Baptist. Okay, so she was pretty important. Uh, the other side here is notice all the details that Luke provides here. Luke is writing this down at a time that people who knew people in Nazareth were alive still. If this was made up, they would have said something. They would have called this out. If this was a false story, it wouldn't have made it out of the first century Palestine. The detail Luke provides here is evidence, and it's, it's, it's important for us to understand this was a real story about real people in a real place at a real time because we serve a real God. So these details are important. Don't just gloss over them. They're in there for a reason. We keep going. Mary was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. And her response is exactly, I think, how I would respond. Confused and disturbed, uh, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't, don't, don't be afraid, Mary, the angel said, for you have found favor with God. You'll conceive and give birth to a son, and you'll name him Jesus. 
and he will be very great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel. His kingdom will never end. This is amazing, huge stuff. In Jewish culture, that Son of the Most High, that's code for Messiah. She knew exactly who Gabriel was telling her was going to be carrying. She, she knew she was going to carry the Messiah. This is amazing stuff. But before we got to that, you see this confused and disturbed part? Again, if this story's made up, why is that there? Mary would have just accepted this and moved on because it wouldn't have been important to show how human she is. Confused and disturbed is a nice way of saying freaked out. Okay, because these angels, they show up, and they're not like these cute little cherubims you see on, on like Coke posters and stuff. They're warriors. The Bible calls them warriors of light. He may have had armor on and a sword. He showed up ready for battle because that's what angels do. So here's this giant angelic warrior who shows up in her front yard, and she's like, whoa, what, what's going on here? When you look at the um, other stories of angels showing up to talk to people throughout Scripture, there's a pattern you see developing. They show up, and the first thing they say is, fear not, or don't be afraid, because they know that we're going to be afraid, and they know that we're freaked out by things that are not normal. But the message that Gabriel had was so important, was so big, was so huge. He knew this was the thing. This was what creation was waiting for from the day God made the world. This is what they've been waiting for, and he couldn't wait to get to the point. And Mary's like, hold up, who, who are you? And he's like, ah, dang it, I forgot the fear not part. Okay, don't be afraid, but here's what's going to happen. Right? I could, that's, that's how I see Gabriel working in this story. And that's important for us to understand because these are people in these stories, and they have real questions. So Gabriel explains this to Mary, and he says, you're going to have a child, and he's going to be the Messiah. And she's like, okay, cool, I like that story. There's problem though, in this biology. Like, I know how babies are made, and this doesn't sound like a thing we can do. See, Mary didn't realize it yet, but a divine child requires a divine conception. If we pick up the story in verse 34, uh, we see that Mary asked the angel, but how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he'll be called the Son of God. Okay, cool. That still sounds a little impossible, angel. I don't think that's going to work. But before she can get that question out, Gabriel knows that she's nervous about that, and he tells her a story. He says, hey, look, what's more, your relative, Elizabeth, she's become pregnant in her old age. People used to say that she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month, for the word of God will never fail. See, Elizabeth was told she was going to have a baby, and then it happened, whether biology wanted it to or not. And so Gabriel's saying, look, God's word never fails. He did the impossible with Elizabeth. He can do this with you. And that's really cool to me because God wasn't afraid of her questions. Um, this whole event was called the Immaculate Conception. And I say that very slowly so I don't say the Immaculate Reception, which is a different thing. I'm a Steelers fan, I admit it, that's, that's what I do, but it's a football thing for those of you who don't know. Um, the Immaculate Conception just means that Jesus was conceived supernaturally. And it's a key, important doctrine for our faith. The Apostles' Creed that they said in the early church included parts of it because it was critical for us to understand that Jesus came to the world 
through a virgin woman. And if you sit back and think, okay, that's kind of a cool story, but why? Why why did Jesus have to come that way? If he was coming to seek and to save the lost, why not show up as a full-grown man, riding on a horse, come in with Rome, make a big story out of it, everybody believes, cut and dry, let's go home. Much bigger marketing campaign, way easier to sell. Why come as a baby to a couple in the middle of Palestine in the first century in the middle of nowhere? Well, there's a couple of prophecies we have to look at um, in the Old Testament that talked about the coming Messiah. The first prophecy we talked about last week, actually, was in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, at this point in the creation story, God has made the world, He's made the garden, and He's put Adam and Eve in it to take care of it. And He says, you can guys can eat whatever you want in here, just not that one tree. And Satan shows up as a serpent and says, hey, did God really say you would die if you ate from that tree? And Adam and Eve are like, you know what? You're, you're, you're right. I think God might be hiding something from us. I, we know better than God. We're going to go eat from that apple. And we're gonna, apple, we assume it was an apple. We go eat from that tree, and we're going to know what we're going to know right from wrong. So they disobeyed God's law. This is what we call the original sin. Sin means saying no to God. And so they said no to God, did their own thing, and because of that, creation broke. God's perfect world was now broken by sin. And as in chapter 3, God is, is issuing judgment on the serpent and on the man, on the woman. And in verse 15, he's talking to the serpent, who is Satan, and says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the oldest prophecy, the first prophecy about the coming Messiah. Notice he says, he, the offspring, he, it's a single person who will come and defeat Satan's lies. Satan will bruise him, but he'll smash Satan's head. This is the, the, the original messianic promise that came through in the garden. And we have to see here that in order for this to be true, Jesus has to be the offspring of the woman. If we flip forward about halfway through your Bibles into Isaiah, Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and many of his prophecies were about the coming Messiah. And in chapter 7, verse 14... We actually see this, the, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. This is a prophecy about God coming to be with us. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. So in order for Jesus to be the Messiah, he had to be born of a woman and born of a virgin. Pop quiz, can anybody name anybody in history who meets those two criteria besides Jesus? Nah, there, there isn't anybody. Everybody's got a biological father, except Jesus. So on those two prophecies alone, he's in a world all to himself as claiming to be the Messiah. There are literally hundreds of others, as many as 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about the coming Messiah. And Jesus nailed them all. I mean, detailed prophecies, even down to the kind of tomb he had to be buried in when he was crucified. The Old Testament says he had to be buried in a rich man's tomb. And he totally was. If you read the story, how he got to that tomb is only a God thing. These are all independent prophecies that support the fact that Jesus is the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. No one else comes close. And this key immaculate conception doctrine was so important to the early church, they wrote about it all the time. 
In fact, we look at um, the Apostle Paul. He wrote a bunch of the New Testament. In his second letter to the Corinthian church, we see this. He says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins, so that we could be made right by God through Christ. Paul is calling his shot. He's saying, look, this Christ guy, he's the Messiah. This is hugely important to our faith. And all of this had to happen this way, but it all hinged on one couple, one ordinary nobody couple in the middle of backwoods Palestine. So the angel says all these things to, to Mary, and he explains it's going to happen, and her response is probably the most encouraging part of this story. We pick it up in verse 38. It says, Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Mary had a choice to make. And so did Joseph. We'll read Joseph's story in a few minutes here. They both had a plan, right? They were a young couple, engaged to be married. They were going to get married, move into a two-story house, 2.8 kids, white picket fence, labradoodle in the front yard, the whole thing. Right? They had a nice, safe plan, and there was nothing wrong with their plan. Their plan was good. It was comfortable. It was safe. God could do things with that, but God had a bigger plan for them, and God showed up in a divine way through Gabriel and said, here's what we're going to do with you, and Mary had a choice. Do I follow God's plan and trust that his plan for my life is better, or do I cling to this hope of my own safe, comfortable life and maybe miss out on God's calling in my life? It's the same thing we all have in front of us today. We have this idea in church, especially in certain denominations, that Mary was something amazing. Like she was something better than human. She was a rock star. God chose her because she was the best. It's not what the scripture says. Mary was just a kid. She was just a young girl. Joseph was just a guy, just a young guy, a carpenter. They were ordinary folks. But our last point for today is that Jesus gives a divine calling to ordinary people. Who could be more ordinary than this young couple in Palestine? Who could be more ordinary than you, me and you? I, I made a joke in the first service. I'm just a guy, and I'm up here with a microphone. God is calling me to do things I wasn't ready to do two and a half months ago. We'll see what he does with it. I don't know. <laughs> We're going to follow him. I really, I really connect well with, with the story of Mary and Joseph, specifically Joseph. We're going to switch over to Matthew now, the book of Matthew, chapter 1. Uh, Matthew wrote his gospel to a Jewish audience. Luke wrote his gospel to more of a general kind of a Greekish audience. So Luke, Luke focused on Mary. Matthew focused on Joseph because in Jewish culture, the father was the one that carried the lineage, would carry the ancestry, and there was a lot more. It was a more patriarchal society. So in chapter 1, verse 18, we pick up the story here. This is how the Messiah Jesus was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before their marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, they became pregnant. She became pregnant, excuse me, through the power of the Holy Spirit. We just read that in Luke. That makes sense, right? That's a recap. So in verse 19, you see Joseph to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. Before we keep going here, that's a scandalous statement. 
um, in, in Hebrew culture, in Jewish culture, if your betrothed came home one day pregnant, you had every right to take her to the religious leaders and have her killed. And no one would have batted an eye. That was normal. That was expected. Joseph was a righteous man, and he thought he was doing her a favor by letting her go off quietly so she could not be killed. And by the societal standards, he was. This was huge. So Joseph was talking about doing this, and as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she'll have a son, and you'll name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through the prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. This is... Equally amazing to Mary's response. I mean, Mary was going to carry Jesus, but Joseph had to take care of them both forever, for the rest of his life. We think that like Mary and Joseph had this angelic moment at the very beginning, and then they said, okay, we'll follow God, and yay, it's all good from there, sunshine, rainbows, Jesus is a man now, he's a disciple maker, death, burial, resurrection, churches started, hurrah. But think about it. Mary was pregnant for nine months. Right? This wasn't like some express pregnancy from the Holy Spirit. This was a full nine-monther, okay? <laughs> this story about Joseph happened in about month three or four of her pregnancy, which means Mary and Joseph together were pregnant with Jesus for six months in this small town in a religious society. They had to endure the backbiting, the rumors, the side eyes, the jeers. Mary's an unwed teenage mother. Joseph is an idiot for believing her lies. I mean, come on. God is this kid's father? Come on. That can't be true. Mary and Joseph didn't deserve that ridicule. They didn't deserve the angry words that were said about them. Joseph was probably dashed career-wise. He was a carpenter in town, but he has a reputation now. And nobody wants to do business with that kind of guy. I don't, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know if God asked me to do this, if, if I'd be capable. I mean, can, can you think you consider yourselves, could you for 30 plus years answer the same question over and over again, who is Jesus' father? Oh, he's God. Yeah, sure, right. And then the lying and the laughing continues on. That's what Mary had to do. Joseph, had to, Joseph died sometime before Jesus was a full-grown man. We don't know when, but until that point, he had to endure those questions. God's calling on their lives was divine. They were just ordinary. But God gave them the strength to endure. See, God doesn't call us to things that we can do on our own. That, that would be unnecessary. We can do that on ourselves. God only calls us to things through which we're going to need his help. Those divine callings for ordinary folks are actually quite common. Um, Mary and Joseph are a shining example of this, but even before Mary and Joseph, you look back at some of the stories in, in the Old Testament, Abraham, just a dude in the desert, and God's like, hey, I'm going to start a nation through you. All right. 
David, he was the smallest of his brothers. God made him king. We have Elisha. Elisha was arguably the greatest prophet in the Old Testament, but he was just plowing a field with some oxen when Elijah walked by and said, hey, let's go. Nehemiah, one of my favorite characters, he was a cupbearer to the king. His job was literally to be poisoned so the king wasn't poisoned. God called him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Rahab, Rahab was a Gentile prostitute in a town destined for destruction by God's army. But God used her to save his spies and save his soldiers, and then as, as I guess, a thanks for that, she became part of Jesus' lineage. She's one of those weirdly shaped branches in his family tree. Esther, Esther was a young Hebrew girl exiled to Persia. God raised her up to be queen of Persia and save his people from annihilation. After Jesus was, was a full-grown man calling his disciples, you look at Simon and Andrew. They were just doo dudes fishing. God said, hey, put your nets down, come follow me. None of these people are exceptional or super ordinary. None of these people have these amazing qualities or riches or these, these skill sets that are unique. No, no Liam Neeson's here. We don't have any craziness like that. What we have here is ordinary folks who listen to God. See, God's main goal, the whole story of the Bible, is about God's love for us. See, God created us to be loved by Him, to be in relationship with Him. And through our own choices, we, we say no to God. We tell God we don't want to do that. We want to do our own thing. But the consequences of doing that, God is the source of all life. If we're not following God, the consequence is death. But God loves us too much to let us follow our own path into death. He sent Jesus to the world. He sent him as a baby so that he could fulfill the law perfectly, live the life we aren't capable of living, and then he died a death that we deserve to die. Then he went down to the grave and punched death in the face and came back and said, no, I am these people's savior. And so now today we can come to the throne of God through Jesus. All we have to do is follow him. And that all started with ordinary people being called to do something extraordinary. We, the church, are God's legacy. Well, Jesus' legacy. Our job is to make sure that we tell everybody everywhere about this Jesus that we love and follow. I want to challenge you this Christmas season to look around. In your lives right now, I guarantee there is at least one person who's nearby who doesn't know Jesus. And you're in their life because you know Jesus. And Jesus wants you to tell them about him. So in this Christmas season, we're doing all the things. We're, we're, we're wrapping presents and buying stuff and going to parties and making the right food and doing all the right things. Enjoy the season, but step back and remember that God has extraordinary things for you to do in your everyday life. He's not looking for you to be a superhuman. He's not looking for you to be amazing. He just needs you to be willing. I challenge you today to look where God is asking you to go and to follow him because he always does amazing things, and the word of God will never return void. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Thank you for coming to save us. Thank you for sending Jesus to ordinary people in an ordinary town. God, you are an extraordinary God. And we love you for it, God. Why you would save us is strictly your love. 
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for redeeming us. God, I pray that anybody today who, who needs to know you will, will listen and chase you down, God, because you are not a God who can be hiding. You are a God who can be found, and you're not afraid of questions and doubts. Thank you for everything, God. In Jesus' name, amen.